Welcome to episode nine of Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree. Joining me once again is my good friend David Scott from Northern Exposure. Welcome to the program, David. Delighted to be here, Mike. Last week, uh, or the last time we spoke, we rather stupidly suggested we should discuss derivatives this week because, of course, these are the contracts, we could call them contracts, that Warren Buffett has uh, described as financial weapons of mass destruction. And although we're not seeing too much discussion of derivatives in the financial press at the moment. You know, there are varying degrees of estimates of, of how much paper is actually floating around in the markets, anything from one and a half quadrillion to, to four quadrillion are, are the, the general estimates. And we'll explain why there's such a broad range uh, in a minute. But just to begin, even if you take the lower end of that, it's a pretty staggering figure. It's totally eye-watering. And it's, it's beyond belief. And, and this is why it's such a difficult subject, because you start to say, well, what's a derivative? Oh, well, a derivative is something that derives its value from something else. And you go, really? And we've got 1.5 to 4 quadrillion dollars worth of these. Is anybody worried? And the answer is, well, they were in 2010. But, but now we seem to have kind of gone slightly sleepy on this. Yes, we've forgotten they exist. Now, look, let's just, I'll just give a brief uh, history of these things, because, of course, it all started out very reasonably with agriculture and farming. The idea of, of a futures contract was to, to manage risk. So w was the farmer going to be uh, able to provide the, the harvest this year? Or what were the prices likely to be in the future? And, and the farmer trying to lock in a price at a particular moment in time because that benefited him. So it's, it's possible to argue that in the, at the beginning of this, uh, it, was, it was done for risk management purposes, for reasonable purposes. But of course, as time has gone on, the speculative opportunities have uh, raised their ugly heads. I suppose it was formalized in the uh, mid-19th century with the Chicago Board of Trade, and they started putting rules around this. And then we started seeing more and more types of derivatives, contracts, options for various kinds, uh, exchange-traded funds, collateralized debt obligations, mortgage-backed securities, forwards, futures, credit default swaps. Uh, and, of course, the, the real elephant in the room, which is over-the-counter derivatives, because they're not traded on any exchange. And so it's really impossible to know what the scale of the paper that's out there is, because these are all private contracts between various players. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is where we get to the weapons of mass financial destruction quote, because it, it is understandable to start when you start at the, the, the origin of the thing, that you have people who are cash rich and who are willing to take risk for a return. And they're extending that from lending money to essentially underwriting risk. And they, they meet up with people who are, who are not cash rich and cannot take risk. You know, farmers who are, who are searching for um, predictability in an uncertain world. And we'll come back to some of those words in a wee while. Um, and the two make a contract and it's mutually beneficial and it's uh, apparently okay. And then, yes, and, and it then it then ballooned out to a lot of the things that we saw around the 2008 financial crisis. 
where people were selling contracts that were complete rubbish. That's an absolutely correct statement, but let's just give one example. I mean, I don't want to get too technical on, on the various types of, of derivatives contract. There I'm, are. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad about that. Mike. Yes. Well, well, there's no point because at the end of the day, it's, it's getting into fa- uh, technical financial stuff that, that isn't really beneficial for the majority of us. But if we take what happened in 2008 as, as a, a good example, because what was going on there was that banks were gathering together mortgages. So an individual or a couple would go into a, a lender and would take out a mortgage and they would sign that piece of paper, which of course, as we've already discussed, is effectively creating money out of nothing because that's a one-sided contract. It's not a contract at all. It's a, it's a promissory note. So you've created the money out of nothing. It has been lent to you in inverted commas and there's a piece of paper which represents that mortgage uh, and that piece of paper then is sold on by the bank to some other financial institution who packages it up uh, with a whole bunch of other pieces of paper that say mortgage on them and of course like everything a mortgage carries a risk and the risk is whether the mortgage is going to be repaid or not. And so you've got some mortgage agreements, you can be 100% sure they're going to be repaid in full. And some mortgage agreements, you can be 100% sure that they won't because the uh, decision to lend the money in the first place, and I use the word lend again heavily in inverted commas, the decision to lend that money in the first place was made on rules which were so loose that uh, you know it was it's obvious to any man and his dog that there was no prospect of getting the money back on it but what they did was they bundled these all together and the idea was allegedly that that would minimize the risk because you would have some well-performing mortgages bundled in with some potentially delinquent mortgages you'd sell them onto the market as a package and you know ultimately everybody would benefit at the end of the day but of course what happened as time went on was that these bundles of mortgages became riskier and riskier because the lending that was going on behind them was riskier and riskier and there were fewer and fewer good quality mortgages in the bundles and more and more potentially delinquent mortgages in the bundles so the risk that was being taken every time one of these things was traded was getting bigger and bigger it was a bubble uh, and the bubble eventually burst yes but there was another derivative aspect to this in in the banks like the goldman sachs who were securitizing and selling these bundles of rubbish knew what was in them eventually and knew that, that they were going to collapse in value. And they were then taking out a derivatives contract, betting against the value of the things they were selling with companies like AIG, who of course had to be bailed out because they couldn't actually sustain the losses. This is something that I, I mentioned a, a couple of programs ago, or that my observation from while I was working in the financial industry, of course, is that to a very large degree, it's a zero-sum game. You're attempting to kill your competitor in the market it's not a you know it's not really about generating income for or generating profit for your customers it's just about stealing the money from the next guy and that's a very good example of that yes now the so this uh, pyramids on top of the idea that a loan which is not really a loan which is actually the creation of money at thin air which is a special privilege given to the banks it it generates a whole lot of perverse incentives all the way down the line. And and the derivatives market seems to be the way that this gets full expression because you have 
in the case of Goldman Sachs, they're betting against their own products because they know the products are bad. AIG are taking the other side of that bet. And then you've got these two companies, as you said, in a zero-sum game. Someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. It's now a long way from reality. It's a financial instrument, a financial weapon of mass destruction. But it, it doesn't any longer have a clear, understandable link to the high street or to the farmer or to anything that's real and tangible. Then on top of that, you've got the sheer scale of it, because at $1.5 or $4 quadrillion, when this goes, it takes everything with it, because it takes all the financial institutions with it. And that means that the entire economy, housing, international trade, and, and the high street banks are all at risk. Now, this is a very important point, David, because the numbers that are bandied about, 1.4 quadrillion, 4 quadrillion, whatever it happens to be, the argument from the financial system is you don't need to worry about these numbers because that might be the face value of the, of the derivatives contracts if you, were gather, if you were to gather them all together into one big pile. But, of course, these things net each other out, and the end result is something which is absolutely manageable. That only works if the netting process is orderly. What happens when the netting process is disorderly, as we saw in 2008? This is exactly the point, right? Because the contracts all have two parties and you have a counterparty risk. And if one party goes under, there's a real loss there. And the scale is such that like so many of these things, it becomes, quote, too big to fail, end quote. And we have an implied assumption on which people are essentially betting that the governments and the central banks will intervene. So if it all goes horribly wrong, the taxpayer and the printing press will combine to ride to the rescue. Now, in 2008, 2009, that's exactly what they did. And there doesn't seem to be any indication that next time is going to be any different because the institutions which are too big to fail have only got bigger since 2008. Well, I would question whether actually governments are in a position to repeat that process. Well, that's a, that's a bigger question. But yeah, you, the suggestion is that the next time there's going to be a sovereign debt crisis and therefore we go from governments to internationalism. And this is the, this is the Great Reset. This has been talked about a lot in a lot of areas. So the derivatives market is, is, is one of the risks alongside government spending, driving money printing and hence inflation. And the sheer unaffordability of the debt burden is what the derivatives is the third of the uh, trifecta of evil that, that could bring about the Great Reset and bring it about with a suddenness that might be truly astounding. My personal view on this is that the Great Reset is a response to a recognition by uh, the financial system and the World Economic Forum that uh, the collapse of the current derivatives bubble is an inevitability. They are preparing for that date, which they recognize is not terribly far away, if it hasn't already happened. These things don't necessarily go bang in, in a thermonuclear explosion the way that 2008 sort of did. It, that, ha that happened pretty quickly. Sometimes it's quite a slow process. And, uh, and of course, if it's not being reported on, we don't necessarily see it until it's so far down the road that it's unstoppable. I just want to mention one other well, in fact, there's two other options. Uh, two, sorry, two other. Sorry, that's a bit of a. <laughs> can't use that word. Can't use that word because that option is a derivative, of course. But, but 
there's two uh, historical examples that I want to mention. The first I'm going to ask you to mention, which is 9-11 and the put options over the airlines. And the other is what NatWest, Royal Bank of Scotland, were doing to small and medium-sized businesses around the time of the financial collapse. So just remind me what happened over 9-11. A put option is a, is a derivative contract that allows the holder to sell uh, a stock at a certain value at a certain future point. Uh, but it doesn't have to be a stock, of course. It really can be anything. Yes. But in this in this case it was in this case it was it was shares in, in um, United Airlines. If if you think that a, a stock is going to is going to fall in value, you get a put option to sell it at, a, at the current value, say, uh, at some future time. You've got an option. You don't have to do this, but you can. So if you're right and the, and the stock plummets in value. You can buy it at the cheaper price, sell it in, in accordance with a contract at a much higher price, and pocket the difference. Now, these are very risky because obviously stocks go up, you lose, and there's essentially no limit to the losses. So it's a, it's a high stakes game. But there was a very unusual number of put options on United Airlines, not other airlines, but specifically on United, in the days leading up to 9-11. Now, not only that, but the person who, who's still unknown, who held those contracts, then had the ability to cash in those contracts and receive a fortune. And they chose not to do it, because it's only an option, right? They didn't come forward and claim their winnings. So this shows not only foresight of the event because of the unusual number of put options but then a realization that to come forward and claim the cash would perhaps bring with it questions that couldn't be answered and they decided to forego the benefits of their huge derivative based pile of money so there were two reasons why I wanted to raise that particular point. Uh, one is, of course, just to highlight once again that this is one of the great unanswered questions about 9-11. It is, it, it is absolutely unanswered. We don't know who it was, place the orders for those options. And of course, when I say we don't know, I mean, you and I don't know, the general public doesn't know. I'm 100% certain that the financial system knows because there's no order goes into the financial system, which is anonymous. But it wasn't in the 9-11 Commission report. No, indeed. My point here is this is another example, if another example was needed, of the utter corruption of the financial system as a system because they were prepared to hide the identity of, of the person who, or the organization or the company or whoever it was that, that placed those orders. And I wonder if it hadn't come out in the days following 9-11 that those options had been placed. I, I suspect that those options would have been actioned and we would never have heard anything about it. No, for sure. Now, the other, the other one you were wanting to raise was the... Uh... Well, NatWest and uh, Royal Bank of Scotland. Now, one way to look at a derivatives contract, as you've hinted at earlier in the programme, is as an insurance policy. And so what uh, NatWest and Royal Bank of Scotland were doing was they were giving small businesses loans, but they put a requirement on those businesses for the loans, which was to take out a, a form of derivatives contract as an insurance, as a hedge against the non-repayment non of the loan. The problem was that it was sold to them as insurance, 
and the people who were taking this out, it was a bit like uh, it was sold to them pretty much the same way that PPI was sold to consu- to, to uh, you know retail consumers. But of course, a derivatives contract is a, com- a complex financial instrument. It's a contract. It's got terms and conditions. It's not it's not a simple insurance policy. You know, most people can read the terms and conditions attached to an insurance policy, and they can basically understand it and know what they're getting themselves into. But in this case, the small business owners had never come across these types of financial instruments before. They weren't given proper financial advice. They were told it was an insurance company, uh, insurance uh, policy. They were left to it. Unfortunately, the market underlying this derivatives contract moved in the opposite direction. And instead of providing insurance for the loan that they'd taken out, it ended up providing the, the small business with a debt. And of course, most of these debts were, became so huge that they couldn't be repaid. And uh, the businesses were put out of business by the banks and assets stripped. This became a massive scandal. It's still ongoing, uh, the fight over this. Here we are, you know, basically 10 years, 12 years later, and it's still ongoing. And it's another example of how well, first of all, how complex these things can be, uh, and the, the, you know, for most people that haven't had an education in deep finance, they're not going to understand the the implications of them. It also, once again, as if we needed any further evidence, demonstrated the corruption of the banking system, and and they don't feel any obligation to their customers uh, to protect their customers, or they don't see the value of their customers. They they see them as a as an asset to be stripped at every opportunity. It's it's a long way from from it being a service, and it's a long way increasingly from it being understandable um, uh, by the people with whom they are making contracts. Yes. Now, look, uh, most people think, David, that uh, whenever a financial transaction happens, uh, that it happens either it happens within some kind of institution, so you know some formal institution. So you might have a transaction. Us as individuals might have transactions with our banks. Uh, banks might have transactions with other banks. They might have transactions with hedge funds, uh, or they might may, may uh, trade some form of uh, financial instrument on an exchange. And the idea of a, an exchange as an institution is well understood. The London Stock Exchange, Wall Street, uh, various commodities exchanges around the world and so on. That's that's where you go to trade certain types of financial instruments and uh, the rules of engagement are understood. Now, one way to uh, try to describe this might be to use uh, the casino as an example or a betting shop. If you go into a betting shop or you go into a casino, there are rules. You go to the, the crap table, for example, there, is, there are limits on how much you can, money you can put down. There, there are uh, odds available and so on. You understand the rules. You put your money down, you win or you lose. That's the way it goes. And the same applies to the uh, to financial exchanges. There's a fee for a transaction. There's limits on what you can do. You've got to identify yourself. You've, you know, there's various uh, settlement deadlines that you've got to meet, and so on. And and the exchange offers some level of protection in the event that your counterparty fails to honour the agreement. Uh, so some derivatives contracts uh, are traded on exchanges, and some aren't. Uh, and the ones that aren't are called over-the-counter derivatives. That might seem a bit strange that you know because people imagine an exchange as being like a place of business, and you you know you you trade over the counter. That implies 
that perhaps it's it's formalized in some way and of course that's <laughs> pretty much sums up the financial industry you you think you're doing one thing when in fact you're doing something completely different would, would they be better termed under the counter that is exactly what would be better uh, termed so over the counter derivatives are, are contracts that are traded privately between two parties, so it might be between one hedge fund and another hedge fund, or it might be between a bank and a hedge fund, without going through any exchange or any other kind of intermediary. And so you might trade swaps, you might trade forward rate agreements, you might trade what are described as exotic options or exotic derivatives. As, so it, it would be it would be like driving along the street and stopping in the middle of the street, picking some guy at random and saying, do you want to bet? The key point is, of course, nobody knows that that bet has taken place. It's a private agreement between you and the other person. And that's effectively what is going on. So this is why when we were talking about the, the value of the, the, the paper that's out there, the value of the derivatives, and when I say value, I don't mean value in terms of that it actually has a value. I mean the number that's printed on the front, because those are two different things, of course, as I think we mentioned on the very first episode of this series. Indeed. Indeed. Bank for International Settlements is supposed to keep tabs on this. But how do they keep tabs of over-the-counter derivatives? They run a survey. And so they're basically asking players in the, in the financial markets to admit to what they're doing. And I'm not even nearly convinced that, that there's any kind of accurate responses to this survey. And that, of course, is why anything that, that is a total value of the derivatives market is, is nothing better than a, an educated guess. If you have 67% interest rate contracts, 8% credit default swaps, 9% foreign exchange contracts, 2% commodity contracts, 1% are equity contracts, that's stocks and shares, 12% uh, are other contracts. That's based on nothing other than the Bank for International Settlements going around a whole bunch of people and saying, well, what are you holding, guys? And increasingly, as we're talking about this, um, the, the analogy is, is that of the betting shop or gambling. And that's, I think, entirely justified. Now, as, as, a, as a small boy, uh, my family had a shop and it was next door to Pat Higgins betting shop and uh, I, I used to see the men coming out of the betting shop and they never looked happy and I think it put me off gambling for life as a look at the faces of the men coming out the betting shop because they, they just you know it, it seemed to be a place they went in optimistic and they came out sad that's what I saw aged three or four what the people who like to bet on the horses and the financial markets are claiming is that the science in this, that you're dealing with risk and it's calculable. You study the going, you study the form of the horse, you get the, the racing times and you look at it, or you do the financial equivalent and you get some information and you're able to make a calculation. And this is an assessment of risk long-term probability, something calculable, something numerical, something tangible that you know, actually reflects a reality in the real world. That horse is 10 to 3 and 100 to 30, and I'm going to bet on it because the actual chance of that horse winning is different and there's a, there's a split between what the market's offering me and, and the reality as I perceive it, and I'm going to bet on that. That's, that's the same calculation, essentially. 
that the derivatives market's engaged in. Now, what if, and I think this is the case, that the future's not a case of risk. It's not a case of probability. It's not a, it's not a, a mathematical probability that you're dealing with. You're dealing with something else. You're dealing with uncertainty. And you don't really know how many legs are on the horse or how many legs a horse is going to have when it comes up to the start line. The scale of unknowns is not something that's mathematically predictable, but something which is inherently chaotic. This is where Nassim Taleb wrote the book, The Black Swan. And if people haven't read it, I think it's, it's well worth a read. It says, well, look, in a world where you've got normal distribution, things are predictable. In a world where you've got the extremes dominate, things become very unpredictable. And if you get an extreme event, all the rules are overturned. And the example he used there is if you take um, 100 people and you work out their average weight, you'll get a number. And if you take the fattest man you can find and substitute him in to that 100, the average will move only a tiny amount. But if you're dealing in financial net worth, you take 100 ordinary people off the street, you work out how much they're worth, and then you swap one of them out and you put in Bill Gates, the average will go stratospherically higher because the one outlier dominates the entire system. And if you're in that sort of world, normal distribution, probability calculus, and all the rest of it don't work, don't make any sense. If we've got a whole system built around all of these people doing calculus based on probability, and the reality is none of this is actually describing what is going to happen, that an extreme event will sweep it all away, then the size of the market just means just reflects the size of the error that's being made. There's one thing that you have forgotten about in what you've just said, and that is malice. The reason I bring this in is because I've witnessed it myself now. I don't know if you've seen the uh, the, the film Margin Call. No, the big short I've seen, Margin Call, I haven't. Margin Call is, is probably the better example in this case because... Uh, because what happened in Margin Call was that, that a fictional financial institution, big fictional financial institution, an individual within that recognized that the risk they were carrying on their mortgage-backed securities, which is what we were talking about at the start of this program, was larger than the market capitalization of their entire company. So a board meeting was called and the decision was taken to remove themselves from every position that they were in within one day. And the recognition at the board meeting was that doing that would destroy the markets for a very, very long time. That would put lots of people out of business. It would make lots of people unemployed and it would have a massive impact in the real world. And that was all recognized at the board, board meeting. And the chief executive said, what have I always told you? you? You win in this game by either being corrupt, and I won't be corrupt, or being first. And of course, he didn't recognize that this was corruption. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> anyway, that's what they did. They, in the, in the film, they destroyed the markets by unwinding all their positions as fast as they possibly could. And of course, without telling their counterparties what they were doing, it took their counterparties some time to recognize what they were doing, by which time the damage was already done. Now, when I was working for a hedge fund, I witnessed exactly this because they found themselves in a position in 2008, early 2008, where they recognized that the risk they were carrying 
was bigger than they were prepared to carry. And in many ways, David, I have to say, what happened was unbelievably impressive because this organization full of PhDs from Oxford and Cambridge devised a strategy for unwinding their positions with a view to to doing it in a way which other market participants wouldn't recognize what they were doing. So they absolutely understood that they were there to screw the counterparties that they were uh, going to be trading with. And, And so I use the word malice because they were determined to win at all costs. It didn't matter who got destroyed in the process. You know, they had got themselves in that position. They were going to get themselves out of that position and they were going to win at all costs. Didn't matter. So I've seen it firsthand. And as I say, in some ways, it's impressive to watch. But the implications of it, of this type of mentality and this type of player in the markets, and it is most keenly seen in the derivatives markets, the implications of it are huge. They're not understood by the average man in the street. And this has got to be taken into account when we consider whether we are willing to bail out businesses that are considered to be too big to fail. Well, maybe that's a place to end because I think one of the things I'd like to go on to is the concept that we shouldn't bail out any of them, that we should let them fall. This is something I'm very keen to investigate more with you because this is sort of what I was hinting at whenever we were discussing regulation and and Glass-Steagall in particular. And so, yes, I think this is an area that does need deeper investigation, should we let them fall. And my, my view is, I think I would probably agree with you, without spoiling the next edition too much, that we should, but we should explain why we're, we have that position. Yes, and, and what the implications are, and dig into that one a little more. Let, let's do that then. So let me say thank you once again, David, and uh, And we'll see everybody in the next episode. Thank you very much, Mike.